Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. We came face to face with the notion that the wax figure medium could be a way of people telling a history that has been denied, distorted, neglected. When we'd get to Capitol every Sunday and it'd be like this thick paper full of ads and articles and stories, I would read them because I was like, I have to figure out how to be a writer one day. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hinken. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week, challenging the narrative. Two black women share their quest to tell black stories in Baltimore. So yeah, so this um, this week we have two women sharing stories about how they're trying to make the representation of Baltimore look like it is in reality, right? So Baltimore is a majority black city and yet the people who have been in control of the representation of Baltimore, whether it's journalists or museum owners, have been mostly white. And so these two women have really made it their mission to uh, rectify that. So our first story teller is Dr. Joanne Martin. And I will say that not only is she interested in making sure that black kids and black people um, in Baltimore sort of see themselves represented, but her her project is even larger than that. She wants to make sure that the stories of all kinds of black inventors and um, history and just this that more stories get told, that enlarging the narrative, challenging the narrative. And um, so take a listen to this story from Dr. Joanne Martin. For my um, late husband, uh, Dr. Elmer Martin, and me, um, the journey to founding America's first Black History Wax Museum right here in Baltimore starts around 1980 when uh, my husband, Elmer, uh, sponsored a little league baseball team of Baltimore um, City children. He had ID pictures taken of them so that they could play in the league. And one of the little boys came up to him with the picture. Um, He had tears in his eyes. Uh, He was angry. And he demanded that Elmer make the photographer take the picture over, um, saying, they got me too black in this picture. I don't want to be as black as they got me in this picture. Now, he's talking to a member of the, uh, uh, the say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud generation. He's talking to a black is beautiful generation. And um, he's talking to the generation that decided that we were black and that that was revolutionary and rejected the notion of being Negro and colored. But here we were. Our journey continued when we took a trip to France. And Elmer got the revelation that perhaps what um, some of us in the U.S. see uh, as French arrogance might simply be having a sense of history, your history, having 
um, the right to claim your history, demanding that you have the right to claim your history. And for black people in America and for Africans, um, that was something that had been denied. Um, the trip then took us, the journey then took us to Spain, where we found that powerful black men on monuments get the sense that they are monumental, as did Franco. Um, but also that that was a way of claiming his history. We then went to Potter's Wax Museum in St. Augustine, Florida, where we came face to face with um, the notion that the wax figure medium could be a way of a people telling a history that has been denied, distorted, neglected that it could be a way of claiming a history, of putting a face on a history that has been faceless. And perhaps to say to little black children who feel that there is something negative about their skin tone, that from the darkest to the lightest and everything in between, this is who you are. Embrace it because your ancestors have fought and struggled and died for you to claim your history and claim who you are. So Elmer and I purchased four wax figures that um, we had for um, a traveling exhibit that Elmer gave the lofty name, the Martin's Wax Exhibition of Great Afro-Americans. And we would take uh, this uh, exhibit around to schools, churches, Lexington Market, uh, Mondamin Mall, and set up as exhibits. We got these um, figures, these first four, by reaching out to a wax figure maker right here in Baltimore named Rob Dorfman. Um, and we pitched his, uh, our idea to him, and he could have taken our idea, but what he did was to set up on what essentially was a layaway plan. And um, therefore, our traveling exhibit got off the ground. And we would take um, these figures, set them up in, uh, um, in uh, those places, and then uh, put them in the hatchback of my Pontiac <laughs> and take them home with us to our two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> and if you looked into the, the, the guest bedroom of our two-bedroom apartment... <laughs> You would have found Mary McLeod Bethune's head on the dresser, <laughs> Frederick Douglass's uh, torso in a corner, <laughs> and parts of Nat Turner and John Brown in various places in that. Um, my husband Elmer started gathering so much stuff uh, for that room that I had to um, issue an ultimatum. Mary McLeod Bethune has got to go. So we started looking around for a place um, that uh, we could put Mary McLeod Bethune in safely. And um, we found a storefront um, in downtown Baltimore um, on Saratoga Street. This was 19, um, 
1983. Um, we um, moved in with 22 wax figures. In 1988, oh, and we became Great Blacks in Wax Museum. In 1988, we moved to North Avenue to a surplus um, firehouse, and that's where we are now. And um, with uh, today about 150 wax figures. And um, when you walked into the, and looked uh, at the exhibits in um, our firehouse museum, um, uh, you would uh, see um, um, scenes. On uh, North Avenue, we are guided by Elmer's mantra, his philosophy. Community development and cultural development go hand in hand. Conventional wisdom all over this nation is that you hide your poverty areas. And once you succeed in hiding them, then you can succeed in neglecting them. Um, and I tell people that when they're walking around in the, in the museum and touring the museum, it's like walking around in the head of Dr. Elmer Martin, our visionary. And I think uh, one of the best examples of that is our slave ship exhibit. Um, we had a very uh, powerful scene in our firehouse exhibits when we first moved in. And you'd walk into it, and just like every other scene in the museum, you'd look into it um, and get a sense of um, the message there. And in our slave ship middle passage um, exhibit, you saw the, the uh, cruelty, the crowdedness, um, just the horror of the slave ship experience. And Elmer complained all the time that this is not what I'm going for. And he finally got us to understand that he didn't want the visitor to be an observer of that experience, but a participant in that experience. So therefore, our slave ship, where you go down into the hold, into the belly, and where you are surrounded by the sounds, the cries, the pain, the anguish of its victims. And you walk into the hold and you see the, the way that people were uh, packed like spoons in a drawer or books on a shelf. And you see the men's quarters and the women's quarters and the boys' quarters. But Elmer put a mirror at the length of the slave ship. And so while you see those things staring at you, behind you, you look into the mirror and you see yourself as not an observer, but a participant. I am so proud and happy uh, to have been invited on this journey by my late husband, Elmer. And even though since 2001, I have um, had to take this journey without him, I'm also proud to be still on this journey, getting to know that I can send a message to little black children that this is who you are, that I can send a message to all children that we need to embrace one another, and that I can thank you for listening to my story.
That story was so captivating. It might be one of my all-time favorite stories that we've had. I know we're, we should say that, but it really, you know, from the top of the story to the moment that she finished and when she uh, descended the stairs to go back to the audience, like I could not stop just like staring at her in awe. Um, I love just how hilarious she yeah. was too. Like dry, just, yeah, like, such a good like. I mean, she's telling such heavy, important, you know, the story of of something that is just a cultural phenomenon for our city and for our country in many ways. But just being so willing to to expose the intimate details of their early years and how yeah. they, you know, like you know, she said the torso of Frederick Douglass was just you know kind of yeah. a strewn in their two bedroom apartment. <laughs> I like I love that, um, and I also love that she just very carefully said, you know, her husband's philosophy, which she fully supported, was that, you know, our nation has a long history of hiding its poverty areas. And once you succeed in hiding our poverty areas, then you succeed in neglecting them. Yeah. Yeah. When I first moved back to Baltimore, I went to the Great Blacks and Wax Museum, as I encourage everyone to do. It's really, really a treasure. And it is exactly what she said. It is so visceral. It is so visceral. And um, there's something uncomfortable. There's something intense. There's all the things. And I I just so respect the way they've taken like a, a form of representation, the wax figure, which is normally associated with like entertainment mm-hmm. and um, repurposed it into this really serious and yet accessible way to depict history. So yes, shout out to Great Blacks in Wax Museum. In 2004, it gained a congressional designation as the National Great Blacks in Wax Museum. So if you are in the Baltimore area or coming to Baltimore, check it out. And maybe Dr. Martin will be there and can um, you can talk with her. And she is amazing. We will take a break and be back with our next story for this week. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. Okay, so this next woman uh, who is a trailblazer in changing the narrative in Baltimore is Lisa Snowden, editor of the Baltimore Beat, uh, which is an independent news outlet. She's a journalist who's been covering Baltimore City policing, civil rights, and the way they intersect for like almost 20 years. Um, she uh, tells the story of how she decided to use the anger that she started to accrue in her career and um, to channel that anger and create something so important. Take a listen. This is not my venue of choice. I am much more comfortable at the, with the written words. You guys got to kind of bear with me. Um, I am a loudmouth journalist. <laughs> I um, have written for Baltimore City Paper, rest in peace. I've written for Baltimore Sun. I've written for the Afro-American newspapers. I've written lots of other freelance things. And I enjoyed all of that. But before I was that, I was a little girl that devoured books. Um, I was a little girl who, growing up in Annapolis, when we'd get the Capitol every Sunday and it'd be like this thick paper full of ads and 
articles and stories. Um, I would read them because I was like, I have to figure out how to be a writer one day. I have to read book reviews because I'm going to write a book one day and I have to figure out how to do it right. Um, that little girl grew up and went to Towson University and was able to graduate and was able to work at WJZ. Um, and that was really my first entryway into what it looked like to be a professional journalist. Um, and that was also really when I started learning some of the problems with journalism. Um, there's this journalism that existed before I was born, probably before a lot of you guys were born, where a journalist might be in Baltimore and say, I need to fly to California or I need to fly somewhere else because it's really important to this story, even though I'm writing about Baltimore. And that would be a thing that happened. The Baltimore Sun had other offices in other places and they just maintained them. And then that's how we got news from a Baltimore perspective from all over the place. But when I got there, that wasn't happening. There was, there was no budgets for travel. There were not budgets for anything. We were kind of told, you know, you make do with what you have. You accept a smaller salary because what you're doing is really important. And, and that's really a thing that I saw that, that affected the stories that we got. Because as you guys know, especially, stories are really important. Like, what are we if we're not stories? Um, so that was a thing that I really saw. And I, I, I couldn't fix it. I was like 20. But it was something I thought about. And as I advanced in my career, I saw some other problems with journalism. A lot of the times when I would be in a newsroom, or if I was talking to an editor, I was the only person that looked like me. There were lots of white people telling lots of stories, but there weren't a lot of black people, and there especially weren't a lot of black women. And, and that really hurt me, especially working in Baltimore City, which is a 60% black city. You can't really walk outside in Baltimore unless you've made an effort and not see one of us. <laughs> and so it's important that the people that are telling the stories about us look like us. There's so much nuance that you can't see if you're not part of that community. And that's for all communities, really. That's why journalism needs to be as diverse as it is. So I saw these things. I thought about these things. I got really angry about these things. And they're kind of marinating in my brain. And I got hired at Baltimore City Paper. Um, and that was really the job that, sh that changed so much for me. It really widened the audience that I had because I think most people in the city waited until Wednesdays to pick up city paper in those yellow boxes. People were clicking online more because a lot of the other pieces I was writing were just kind of one-offs. Um, and my editor there, Karen Hoopert, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins University, encouraged me to write in a different way. Like, tell the facts, but also include the, my perspective as, as part of those facts. Um, they, City Paper, when they hired me, had just kind of begun this process of really rethinking the way that they did news. Because even though City Paper was alternative and progressive, progressive does not necessarily correlate with black. So they were telling stories from an outsider perspective in a different way, but they were still really neglecting a lot of the, a lot of the city's main audience, which is majority black. And they were trying to repair that by hiring me, by uh, hiring more freelance black photographers, more freelance writers. The writer D. Watkins got his start really writing a lot of essays for City Paper. Um, and so I got hired a little bit after Freddie Gray's death. 
And it was about time for those officers who had been charged to go to trial. And my editor, Karen, wanted me to go cover those trials. And I was like, you know, I've done a lot of reporting. I am not a court reporter, so I don't know if you really want me. Like, there's other people here that are, you know, they're, they have lots of experience being court reporters. And she's like, no, like, the Sun's going to be there. The New York Times is going to be there. There's lots of major news outlets that are going to be there that if people want, like, point by point, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened, they can go to those places. She's like, I really want to hear your perspective. And so the pieces that I ended up writing watching those trials, um, as we know, all of them didn't happen. But I, I sat there and I watched, I watched lawyers for the, for the officers that were on trial say, not to blame him for his own death, but... I saw situations where the the lawyers for the for the police officers were saying, you know, you know, Your Honor, like you have to you have to excuse what they did because they were there was this crazy giant crowd and they were being belligerent, so they had to just kind of like toss them in the in the in the truck and keep moving. And the office and the, the judge said, "Well, can we pull up the video and see what that looked like?" And it wasn't a giant crowd. It was maybe like seven or ten people who were worried because they saw a member of their community in pain, like screaming in pain. And so knowing that, seeing how black people can be dehumanized in the courtroom, and also knowing that a lot of the reporters that were sitting next to me in the reporter section could write about this and then go home and think about other things. Whereas I'm writing this and thinking about could that be my brother? Could that be my cousin? Could that be my, my son one day? So those are the kind of stories that I, I begin to write. So this, that happened. We got rolling kind of writing the stories that we wanted to write, really telling different types of things, putting perspective on different types of, of people even in, in Baltimore. And then the son decided to kill City Paper. Um, we were all disappointed about it. I was lucky enough to get hired at the Sun writing for their um, editorial section. While I'm doing that and I'm writing a few pieces, my old editor is busy trying to figure out how we can keep the keep City Paper alive. He found some buyers. The Sun said, "No, we're not doing that. <laughs> like we're not selling it." Um, but he then found someone who was willing to finance a new paper. So they decided that this new paper was going to happen. And Brandon, my editor, was like, Lisa, I want you to be the editor-in-chief. And I was like, I never ran anything. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea. And she's like, no, it's fine. I, I thought about it. I talked to my dad, who's the most stable, like, consistent person that I know, no risk taker. And he was like, what are you going to do it? Are you scared? And I was like, well, I guess I got to do it. <laughs> so um, we launched it. We ran for about five months. We got to, we did nothing but black people on the cover. We got to really challenge. We got to even really push what I was doing at City Paper even further and really get deeper into challenging what journalism is and what storytelling is. Um, it died. <laughs> Our publisher said that it wasn't making money. I'm hard-headed, so I said, okay, that's fine, and I relaunched it. 
Um, I am now working on some stuff that I'm not supposed to be talking about right now, but I'll just say it's not over. Um, but I just wanted to kind of share with you guys the journey that I've taken from that to where I am now. And I really want to encourage you guys to listen to stories, push other people to tell their stories, and also push these newspapers and TV stations and radio stations, because they want your eyes, they want your ears, and they want your money to keep telling stories that aren't just the same things. Yeah, so uh, Baltimore Beat is thriving. It is in newsstands. You can read it at baltimorebeat.com. It's black-led, black-run, and really a monumental achievement to start a publication given all the challenges in journalism today. And just so wonderful to have that in the community. And I want to also say that they are running poetry from students in writers in Baltimore schools. And that's such a great thing to, to give kids a place to have their work published. Yep. So one, I know who happened to know <laughs> one of those students very well. Yeah. Laura's daughter. So please read the Baltimore Beat. Find it on in their boxes or check them out online. And um And thanks, y'all, for listening today to these two powerful stories. We will be back soon with more stories from The Stoop. Until then, you can visit us at stoopstorytelling.com, where you can find out about shows and listen to stories. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey, our producer. See you soon.